0: Now let me read Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we are looking into at the moment. And it says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now if you turn over to Matthew chapter 19, we have another occasion when Jesus addressed this subject with a little bit more detail. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, some disciples came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Now, that's as far as I'm going to read. Keep a finger in Matthew 19 and a finger in Matthew chapter 5. Because I want today to talk about this very difficult and painful subject of divorce. In addressing this whole subject of divorce, I hope that what I have to say will give you hope. I trust that if you're in a situation where marriage is a struggle for you, that you'll find hope. If you're in a divorce situation, you'll also find hope in what I have to share with you. Matthew chapter 5, you remember Jesus contrasts a series of ethical issues where he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he either quotes the law of Moses or the way the Pharisees had interpreted the law of Moses, and having quoted that to them, he then says, but I say unto you, and gives his own statement. And the difference is not that Jesus is revising or rewriting the law, but he's going to the very heart of it and dealing with the cause, not simply with the effect. So when he said, you've heard it said you must not commit adultery, well, you should not murder was the first one, you should not murder, that was the effect. But I sent you, if you're angry with your brother, deal with that because that is the cause. When he said You've heard it said you must not commit adultery. That is the effect I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, that is the cause. You're already guilty. One is external, one is internal. One is about activity, the other is about attitude. And the gospel is not first and foremost about changing our behavior and what we do. That is simply a fruit of the gospel, which is changing the heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Many of those are covered in the sin on the mount. If that's where they come from, how do you deal with them? You deal with them in the heart. And that's why the teaching of Jesus... It's not just about what we do, it's about what we are and that's where he is at work within our own lives and experience. Now we come to this very important yet very difficult issue of divorce. Divorce is a painful fact of life. Those who have experienced it know the pain of it most. And there are many here this morning, without doubt, you know the pain of divorce either through your own experience of divorce or because in your own family you have experienced that. And if you are a child of a couple that are divorced, you will know the pain of that. When my wife Hilary was 18, her parents divorced. And the pain of that is still with her and probably will be throughout her life. Now the reality is that many marriages have become a place of torment, not a place of fulfillment and joy and protection and peace. And I want to talk not just academically, if you like, or doctrinally, I want to talk pastorally. We must understand what Jesus teaches and then the wider context of what scripture teaches And in so doing, I know we're opening some pains and wounds. It is deeply personal for many of us. And yet, it is essential that we understand what the scriptures say about this. You know, it used to be that divorce was very rarely found in Christian evangelical circles. To our shame, that is no longer true. The divorce rates amongst Christians are apparently very similar to those in the world at large. George Barner, who is a well-known researcher, has written that we rarely find substantial differences between the moral behavior of Christians and of non-Christians. We would love to be able to report that Christians are living very distinct lives and impacting their community because of that. But in the area of divorce rates, they continue to be roughly the same as the world. The church no longer has the moral authority to speak about marriage and divorce in our world with any credibility at all. We have bought into the myth that marriage is a convenience. You can opt in and when it's tough or rough or you've got better options, you can opt out. In fact, it seems to me that many Christians, I'm talking about Christians have evidently rejected biblical teaching about love, about sex, about marriage, and about divorce. Rejected it, don't want it, and choose to live differently. And of course, reap the consequences in the process. Now when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19, his answer to them was not to answer the question about divorce, but to talk about marriage. And therefore I want to do it that way, because if we're going to understand divorce, we must understand it in the context of understanding what marriage is and why divorce is an aberration of that. So I have three points I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that marriage is a commitment. Now, of course, we could spend a lot of time just talking about this, and there are many things I have to leave unsaid. But the starting point in marriage is not that it is a convenience, but that it is a commitment. Here is God's first word on the subject. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, he said, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is, they become united, they become committed. Marriage is not a mixture of physical desire plus vague sentimentality plus social security. Like a provisional sexual union that can be terminated when the love dissolves or grows stale, or you simply want to move on. It is a lifelong commitment. Now, that is lost in the world at large. In, uh, at a wedding in Britain, in London, of two well known socialites just a few years ago, the father of the bride. Welcome the groom into the family by saying, I believe you'll make a very good first husband for our daughter. (laughs) That is tragic. That that is the understanding of marriage. I know we laugh because these things are funny, perhaps. But they're tragic as well. That it's that cheap and that disposable. And quite predictably that marriage actually did break up. I heard a similar discussion on the radio this week, driving my car. How many times is it good to have a proper wedding? And they concluded in this discussion that probably by, the third, by your third wedding it's probably best just to elope and come back and tell your friends you're married. Don't, don't invite them to a bash. They've already given you presents twice. Twice. But nobody in this discussion says, hey, what in the world are we doing to marriage? What in the world are we doing to the children that come out of these marriages? Are we crazy? Nobody says that. They say it's your right, it's your freedom. Marriages are disposable. Like the paper cups you pick up at McDonald's and Tim Hortons and throw away when your coffee's drunk. In Scripture, it's very different. In scripture, and I have chosen my words carefully here, love and marriage are for the tough-minded, not for the sentimental. It's where husband and wife commit themselves to their relationship, where they work away at it, loving and caring for each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death separates them. Not a convenience for better, for riches, for health. Until something else comes along. And if it's tough, well back out. And all marriages have their struggles. Don't kid yourself. All marriages have their struggles. All couples have to work on building a good marriage. We're bought into this Hollywood myth, you see, of glamour and uh, you know, eternal youthfulness and always looking good. That isn't true. If that's your idea, children will get in the way. So will the fact that your spouse has ideas of their own. Hmm. Marriage is a determined commitment to seek each other's good, to cherish one another, to shelter one another, to protect one another, to nurture one another, to look after one another, to edify one another, to be patient with one another, to love one another. It's about the nurture and security of children. They aren't just a nice appendage. Oh, isn't this wonderful, we've had a little baby, isn't it cute? This is a huge commitment to an extremely vulnerable human being. And it's providing a safe environment where the children believe that it's permanent and secure. When Jesus said in Matthew 19, there are no longer two but one, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate... He's saying this is a divine ordinance. By the way, when it says that whom God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. Please don't come up with the excuse somebody came to me with this morning. God didn't join us together. We made a mistake. We've joined ourselves together. No, that's not what he's talking about. The marriage itself is God's ordination. And if you choose to marry somebody, you are joined together before God by God. He instituted marriage. It's a divine ordinance. It's not a convenience. And when Jesus said this, the disciples responded in Matthew 19.10 by saying, if this is the situation with a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. They were saying, wow, if, if it's that final, if it's that level of commitment, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, you're right. And if you can get hold of that, get hold of that. And if you're not prepared for that, don't marry. If this is a trial run, we'll see if it works. If it doesn't, we'll put it down to bad experience, but we'll move on. That is not marriage in Scripture. And because God's will and purpose is the permanence of marriage, then divorce is not the will of of God. In fact, God states unambiguously in the book of Malachi, I hate divorce. And of course, so do most of us, especially if you've been part of it, you probably hate it more than anybody. Because you know it is a breaking of something designed to be very precious and designed to be permanent. So that's my first point, and there's lots more that could and should be said about all of that. But marriage is a commitment. Now, against that background, the second point I want to make is that divorce is a concession. That is, that Jesus concedes that divorce does take place. Now, in verse 31 of Matthew 5, he said, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Where that had been said was by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And uh, I'm going to read to you if you'd like to turn to Deuteronomy 24 uh, because this is an important statement by Moses about divorce where it says, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, that's a very ambiguous phrase, we'll come back to that in a few minutes, Because he finds something indecent about her, also ambiguous, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That will be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. So the whole statement there is that if a man divorces his wife and she marries somebody else and then he dies or that marriage breaks up, she must not come back to the first husband. You do not treat marriage in that kind of light way where you come in and you come out. You're not playing around. This is serious business. If you're out, you are out. Close the door. That's what... Moses is saying that. Now, that's not the debatable point. The debatable point is, or the point of discussion with, with Jesus, was, what is this something indecent, quote unquote, that enables the husband to give a certificate of divorce to his wife? Well, of course, the different rabbinic schools tried to interpret this in the best way they knew, and there were two major rabbinic schools, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. They were a generation or so before Jesus, but they are still highly regarded today by Jewish people. And the school of Shammai interpreted the phrase, something indecent about her, as meaning that when the husband married his wife he understood that she was a virgin but then he discovered that she was not and you can read in Deuteronomy 22 how he might make that discovery and what kind of evidence needs to be produced for or against that fact and therefore Shemiah taught that this was divorce on the ground of an illicit sexual relationship before the marriage, some who were in the school of Shammai extended that to extramarital sexual relationships, i.e., adultery that may have taken place after the marriage, as well. That was the school of Shammai. They interpreted this very narrowly in that way. The school of Hillel Interpreted the same phrase, something indecent about her, in the broadest possible way. If a man finds anything he considers offensive, that would be sufficient. Heliel himself actually cited, and I quote, "If she burned the toast." I didn't realize they had toast in those days, but they apparently did, and if she burned it, this was a good presumably repeated repeatedly, if she you know burned his breakfast. If she nagged him, if she committed the crime of getting old, if she lost her looks, if he met a nicer one, all these were as loose as that. One rabbi wrote, if she, if he, she ceased to find favor in his sight, well that is as broad and as ambiguous as you can imagine. Now for those who held this view, which were many, many of the Jewish people, marriage had become treated very lightly. You may notice, by the way, it's all about husbands divorcing wives, which was true under Jewish law. A wife could not divorce her husband. The reason being that the husband was supposed to protect his wife. She was supposed to be protected by him, not in need of the law in her own case. So when Matthew writes this, writing to Jews as he was, he just cites out Mark's gospel, written to Gentiles, cites Roman law, which permits a woman to divorce her husband. But in this instance, it speaks from the man's perspective of divorcing his wife. And we need to think very carefully about this because... What they were saying basically was whatever the grounds are for divorcing your wife, you know, give her a certificate, do it legally, do it tidily, make it final. Now, before we come back to that, let, let me talk a bit about this clause, marital unfaithfulness, that is used here by Jesus in Matthew 5 where he says uh, anyone who divorces except for marital unfaithfulness. The word used here is not the word for adultery. It is the word pornea. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. And normally it refers to fornication. That is a word for pre-marital sexual relations. Which is partly how Shemei interpreted Moses in in that kind of way. The word for adultery is is a different word and in fact when he says anyone who marries a divorced woman causes her to commit adultery, he uses a different word for adultery. Now elsewhere in the Bible, the word pornea is used actually in in various ways. Uh, In Matthew 21, it's used of prostitution. 1 Corinthians 5, it's used of incest. It's used of sexual immorality in general in Mark chapter 7. It's used of adultery in uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint in Jeremiah chapter 3. Use of adultery there. And comparing the different ways in which this word is used in Scripture, it, it would seem to be broader than just adultery, which is a very specific word, but rather used to refer to all illicit sexual activity outside of the marriage. I'll tell you why. Because that act in itself is the act that breaks the exclusiveness of the marriage bond. The sexual union in marriage is an exclusive union and to violate it is itself to break the union into which you've entered. In other words, I suggest to you it's not so much that sexual immorality is a reason for breaking the marriage, sexual immorality itself breaks the marriage because of its intended exclusivity. And behind that kind of sexual loose living, so to speak, lies something Jesus has spoken of in this context in Matthew 5. It is lust. Because earlier, just verses before, he speaks about adultery and lust. And then he talks about divorce almost in the same breath. In fact, the King James puts it in the same paragraph, which may or may not be accurate. Because it's difficult to know exactly the paragraphs originally intended. But certainly it's in the same theme that he's left in the minds of the people he's speaking to. Lust is self-absorption. We were having a conversation the other evening at home. And my son, who's 16, asked, uh, I've forgotten, in fact I have no idea, I can't recall how this conversation came about. But he asked, what is lust? So I said, what do you think it is? He said, is it when you think a chick is hot? (laughs) Well, we all recognize a hot chick. (laughs) That in itself isn't lust. It only becomes lust when you want to use and abuse her. That's when it becomes lust. Because lust is basically centered around me and my ego. And one of the things that has to die in marriage is egotism. And the two are to become one. And it dies hard. I didn't know how selfish I was until I got married. Most of my life had centered around my interests, my plans... And suddenly now I'm married to Hillary. She has interests. She has plans. She has ideas. She has views. And one of the hardest things is dealing with selfishness. Don't kid yourself. Extramarital sex is selfishness. It's born out of lust, not out of love. You see... We don't become an extension of one another. Now, now probably we men are more inclined to think that way than, than, than women are, that she's an extension of me. She's an appendage to me. You know, she's part of my deal now. She, but I'm, I'm the kitty. I'm the number one. I, I know some husbands who think that. I know some marriages where they've accepted, okay, he's number one, I've come long behind. But actually it's about the two becoming one. And... If we see each other as an extension of ourselves or somebody to use, by definition, if there's somebody to use, the use is actually abuse. When it says the two become one, that is an awful lot more than sleeping together on your wedding night. It is a long, sometimes painful process of releasing each other to be themselves in the context of being one. Actually you're never more who you are individually within marriage than when you are one and you're knitted together at the base. You only stop being who you are when you're not allowing yourselves to become one and you're one's trying to control the other the problem is not that marriage is going wrong. You know what the problem is? It's our discipleship is going wrong. If you're a Christian, your marriage is in trouble. It's probably not your marriage, it's your discipleship that's the issue. Because what you do with the self, I'm crucified with Christ. You bring yourself to the cross. And when our discipleship is shallow and superficial, even that becomes about me and my fulfillment and my getting things. But in marriage, the me has to become you and the you has to become us. And I'm speaking as one who learned this very slowly and very painfully. And the breaking of the sexual union is the only ground Jesus gives for divorce because of the sacredness of the sexual union and its need to be protected. If you're in a situation where that has been broken, there is, of course, forgiveness. But marriage just says a caution, if you're in a marriage where there has been illicit sexual activity, if you're the guilty party, please don't expect your partner to just say, Yes, I forgive you, and that's it, it's over and done with. That forgiveness will be a long process. The rebuilding of respect and trust will take a long time. But there is forgiveness and with that forgiveness as Jesus demonstrated when the woman caught in adultery was brought to him in John chapter 8 and he forgave her I don't condemn you he said and then he said this go and sin no more forgiveness involves this had better stop right away quit forgiveness isn't like a doormat to wipe our dirty feet so we can get them clean then go out in the muck again with forgiveness is the restoration of what was lost and broken but there's a third point i want to make marriage is a commitment divorce is a concession jesus allows it only for Ponia, illicit sexual activity. But there's a third point that I want to make that comes out of Matthew 19 In the question, though implied in Matthew 5, 7 on the Mount, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, he obviously didn't command it, but he permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not that way from the beginning. So they asked the question, well, if this is the only reason on which a marriage breaks and divorce takes place, why did Moses give us a the divorce? And Jesus said, "It's because your hearts were hard." Now, this is not referring to sexual sin. That is evident because in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22, it tells us what to do about sex, tells them what to do about adultery in a marriage, and the result of adultery was not divorce; it was actually death, stoning. Now, most did not follow that through. We have very, very few instances of that. actually taking place. When Joseph found Mary to be pregnant, before they were properly married, though they were in that betrothal period, which was a legal binding relationship, though the, the marriage was not yet consummated, and she was pregnant, of course, because the Holy Spirit had miraculously brought about the conception of Jesus, Joseph didn't believe that, understand it a bit first, so he decided he would divorce her quietly. That was the better option. Stoning was what the law required, but most people wouldn't have gone that far, although that was what the law stated. The men who brought the woman to Jesus in John 8, they did want to stone her. The point I'm making is that the consequence of adultery has already been dealt with in Deuteronomy 22, and then in Deuteronomy 24, he talks about something else that happens. And my third point I want to make from this is that divorce is a protection. That may seem a strange word to use. But I want to point out two things that Moses ruling on divorce and the need to issue a civil divorce did. The first thing it did is that it regulated divorce. Because actually the situation had become quite chaotic when men thought they could divorce their wives for any reason, just bring some charge and get rid of her, and basically that meant, throw out on the street, totally alone, rejected, defiled. And Moses says, no. Your wife is not your personal property, as some of them considered her to be, to be disposed of at will. There have to be specific reasons and they have to be established by two or three witnesses and brought before a presiding judge and then a certificate of divorce may be issued to regulate the separation. Now if this was not to do with adultery or sexual misdemeanor what was it to do with? And actually, Moses and Deuteronomy is completely silent about what those issues might be. Probably because if he listed three, we'd make that a legal list. But there are situations when a partner abuses the other partner. There's no grounds at all for a woman to stay in a marriage when her husband beats her. He needs to sort that out before he has the privilege of having her back in his home. Or vice versa. It has to do with the hardness of a man's heart. A woman's heart actually, Jesus directs it to the man. He says it's because your hearts were hard. And that may not be physical beating, it might be emotional, psychological strangulation. That takes place too Why? because one is abusing and controlling and manipulating the other. And destroying her or him. But he doesn't give us a list of what qualifies, what doesn't. So it was to actually regulate divorce that Moses introduced this. Not to extend it, but to limit it by regulating it. And the second thing, it was to protect the woman. You see this hardness of the heart, which Jesus speaks of in Matthew 19... Talking about divorcing women, he says, you, Moses permitted you to divorce yours because your hearts were hard. There was something wrong with you in that. And if you are treating her cruelly, or you were abusing her emotionally or sexually or physically... Then because of the hardness of your heart, because of your unwillingness to in humility put that ego to death and serve and look after her and cherish her and nurture her. He's actually protecting the abused person. And actually God is always on the side of the disadvantaged and the weak. And Moses also says that she should be provided for after the divorce if you leave her alone. He says that in Exodus 21 about a particular situation where a man marries the, da- uh, the daughter of a servant. A servant is already within the man's household but he marries the daughter and then he divorces her. And Exodus 21 verse 10 he says if he marries another woman he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights whatever they may be. Probably access to children. I don't know. It doesn't state. He says, All right, you're going to leave this woman behind? You've not walked out of her life. You had better care for her even though you marry another woman. Because you made a commitment to her. And don't deprive her of food, clothing, and her rights. The things, things are not clear cut. If you are genuine and you're discipleship with the Lord Jesus, the very clear cut. You simply live in unity and oneness, nurturing each other, building each other, caring for each other, loving each other. And loving each other is not having nice feelings. It's deeper than that. Those feelings grow out of that. In fact, some of the more stable marriages are arranged marriages. Not advocating this, but there are cultures where that takes place. And in arranged marriages, in the culture from which you come, the basis of that marriage is a commitment to the other person. And the love grows out of that. And that usually is a better recipe for stability. It's not, oh, I really feel nice about her. That will come. I am committed to her. Love grows out of commitment. But divorce need not be. And here's what I want to leave you with today. All marriages can survive if you are a Christian and your life is given to Jesus Christ. He is committed to your marriage. And everything to which God is committed, he also provides the resources to enable it to work and function. But you've got to work it through. And don't be afraid of conflict. It's actually good for a marriage. As Ruth Graham said, if you are both the same, one of you is unnecessary. <laughs> don't be afraid to argue, iron sharpens iron. Sometimes. A couple don't argue simply because one has ground the other one down to where she has no or he has no position left from which to argue and contribute their perspective. And the best thing about arguing is making up after it. (laughs) That's part of the spark of marriage and of life. Spend good time together. Not always busy, busy. Who am I to say all this, but (laughs) <laughs> Spend good time together. We try. <laughs> Have fun together. Laugh together. Cry together. Don't bottle up. Those times bring you very close. Respect each other's weaknesses. You know, we marry each other for their strengths. But you've married the whole package, including the weaknesses. Sometimes we admire the strengths and we criticize the weaknesses. This is who he is, this is who she is. Love their weaknesses too. And love them in their weaknesses. Draw out each other's strengths. Tell each other the truth. Say sorry often. Give time. For hurts to heal. Surprise each other. Don't dominate each other. And get help when you need it. Because the most precious thing in your life is not your business, it's not your work, it's not your accomplishments, it's actually your marriage. If you're not sure? Ask your kids about that. They'd far more prefer you and your spouse to be at peace and relaxed and nurturing each other than bringing home more bacon than you need. And then maybe there's some here, and your marriage is on the brink. In humility, seek God. In that together, get help. He is committed to your marriage because whatever he ordains, he will sustain. And if someone's heart is hard, and sadly that remains true. There are those whose hearts are hard, and if someone's heart remains hard until that heart is broken before God and before your wife or before your husband. You won't see the growth and union and dynamism that marriage can bring. But let's not buy these myths, it's all happy ever after. You go into a marriage saying, this is so wonderful, I love her so much and she loves me and it's going to be just wonderful you're going to come home at the end of the honeymoon <laughs> it takes discipline and care and thought one last thing I haven't time to talk about it, but Jesus talks about it here so I'll mention it verse 32 Matthew 5 anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress That has given a lot of difficulty to people. What in the world does that mean? How does divorcing a woman cause her to become an adulteress? It can be argued that divorce is wrong. It can be argued that divorce is painful. It can be argued that divorce is sinful. It can be argued that divorce is destructive. But how can it be argued that divorce is adultery? Adultery involves some kind of sexual union. And so I can only conclude that what Jesus implies here as in Deuteronomy with Moses that divorce assumes remarriage. Of course divorce without remarriage is possible but the assumption is that the person divorced will remarry. Moses certainly Assume that. Divorce would lead to remarriage. But the issue is not the remarriage. The issue is the divorce. It's divorce that's being addressed here. And where divorce can be avoided, it should be avoided and can be avoided. Where divorce takes place, the partner, it seems to me, is then free. You may have a different view on that. But we seek to understand what does Jesus mean? What does the scripture mean? That's our only task here. Not to have opinions about it, but just to say, what does it mean? What is it saying to us? And I am comfortable with understanding that as meaning that a person divorced is driven into another marriage. The remarriage takes place. If you're married, protect it. There are a million things in our world that will seek to destroy it, not least the myths. And we're bought into Hollywood glamour and all the media images that tell us marriage is cheap anyway. It's not an option. Just just to marry and and then divorce. And if you say, well, I didn't know he would be like this, I didn't know she would be like this, fool you for not knowing before you marry what she's like and what he's like. Make sure you know who they are because this is a lifelong commitment into which you're entering, ordained by God, privileged to bring to you a richness and a fulfillment that God intends that marriages bring to each partner and to their family. And rather than simply sliding with the state of the world, which is what the church of Jesus Christ is doing, and throwing up a hand saying, hey, we have no solution to this marriage issue, we're just the same as the world out there, we're doing it the same way. No wonder we lose credibility. No wonder the world don't listen. They say, put your house in order first. My prayer is that God will bring amongst his own people a great revival of spiritual life and commitment and obedience. We'll actually be able to demonstrate this works because God is committed to making his will work in our lives. But so often we just act very humanly and we don't bring God in. We leave God on the sidelines. And I trust that for some of you there's hope. If you're in a situation where your marriage is crumbling, there's hope. There is hope. If you're in a situation where your marriage is bad and you're being abused, there is hope that the hard hearts will become softened. And please don't say, well, it's her heart. It's our heart together. That's the way to start. If you want to keep your heart hot, keep your heart hot. But you probably won't keep your marriage. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you as our Lord. We bow before your word as it's the written expression of your mind. We recognize, as the disciples did, this is a hard saying. I pray for those here who are wounded and hurting in some way. I pray, Lord Jesus, that where marriages can be revived with new life and humility, and a mutual serving of one another. And egos nailed to the cross. Where you place them. I pray Lord Jesus that you'll bring. Freshness into our personal lives. Into our marriages. Into our families. That you may know. And experience. All that it means when the two become one. With the certainty God. God joined us together and therefore don't tamper with it because in it you fulfill your best and highest purposes and I thank you for this in Jesus name, Amen